and welcome back to a special, very topical episode of Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. Sunday night, we heard that the U.S. was pulling troops out of Syria, clearing the way for Turkey to invade. Well, today we have our expert here, Michael Rubin, to talk about this. Max, tell us about him. So as we talk right now, Turkish forces are moving into northeastern Syria. And joining us today is Michael Rubin, an AEI scholar and an expert in Middle East politics and relations. Dr. Rubin has a PhD from Yale. He's done a whole bunch of stuff involving policy, both inside and outside of government, but all focused on the Middle East. He travels over there frequently, both to Syria and Iraq. So he's a great resource, and we had a nice conversation with him here about the implications of this for U.S. policy, for the Kurds, for the broader Middle East. I don't want to oversell it or knock anybody else, but I might have learned more of this episode than any episode we have done ever. Jeez. And although I guess that kind of includes, we had him on back in February, I want to say. Yeah, talk about Iran. Talk about the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution. Also a great episode. I recommend you check that out. But if you want to understand what's happening in Syria and why it matters that we are pulling out our forces. You are in the right place. This is the episode for you. Without further ado, here is Michael Rubin. Dr. Rubin, thank you for coming back on Banter today. Hey, thanks for having me. So Republican politicians don't publicly disagree with the president much anymore. But after his decision to pull out U.S. troops from Syria, they are finally speaking out again. Even Lindsey Graham said today on Fox, quote, we can't abandon the Kurds now. We can't turn it over to Turkey. To think that will work is really delusional and dangerous. Pray for the Kurds. So can we just start with a 30,000 foot view of what's going on? What is the state of the war in Syria and why does it matter to Turkey and the Kurds that the U.S. is pulling out our troops? Okay. To understand what's going on, we have to understand that for decades, we allied ourselves with Turkey, which within NATO has the second most men under arms after the United States. However, in 2014, we started working with the Kurds in Syria uh, as they were fighting the Islamic State. Now, until 2014, we didn't want to work with the Kurds in Syria simply because Turkey and the Kurds didn't get along. The Kurds have fought a almost 35-year insurgency against Turkey. And so Turkey, that was always the red line for Turkey. So what happened in 2014? Basically, that coincided with the rise of the Islamic State and the battle for this town in northern Syria called Kobane. And, and long story short, the Obama administration and many foreign policy professionals decided that after seeing the intelligence that it was irrefutable that Turkey had been working passively, if not actively, with the Islamic State. And so suddenly we began relying on Turkey less, the Kurds more, and there followed the ultimate defeat of the Islamic State. The reason why this is such a hot potato now is because, put politics aside, you've got both Democrats and Republicans who were there, followed the events, recognized the intelligence, and don't trust Turkey to defend anyone against the Islamic State. And against them, you have Donald Trump, who received assurances from Turkey's leader in a Sunday evening phone call. And so Donald Trump made his decision based on that phone call. And you have all the professionals, Obama administration alum, many Republican national security leaders who say, no, 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 you've been had. What was 
if it's public or not, I and mean, what do you think was the content of that phone call? They must have cut some kind of a deal that benefited Trump for him to just voluntarily do this, or do you not see it that way? Well, ultimately, look, elections matter. Trump won elections, and Trump said that he didn't want to be entangled in the Middle East. And what Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, did was tell Trump, basically, you've defeated the Islamic State. We'll take it from here. You can trust me. And Trump did. The problem is... Huh. No one else trusts Recep Tayyip Erdogan because, for example, there was a WikiLeaks dump of Turkish emails, and that showed that Recep Tayyip Erdogan's son-in-law had profited directly in oil trades with the Islamic State. Um, we've had debriefings, intelligence debriefings, um, which show uh, from captured Islamic fighters that show direct assistance that they received inside Turkey. 90% of the foreign fighters who came to fight with the Islamic State traversed the Turkish border. And this wasn't unknown to Turkey. The Americans pointed out exactly who they were and where they were trying to cross. And Turkey, not only did they refuse to take the intelligence, they also refused to seal the border. And those people became Islamic State fighters. So what does Trump think or want Turkey to do? Just come in here and continue the fight against ISIS or and compare that to what is Turkey actually going to do when they invade Syria? Well, ultimately, I don't think Trump really cares. He just wants American forces out. And this isn't what Iraq was. This wasn't Afghanistan. We're talking a couple dozen American forces who were sort of acting as a tripwire. And I don't really think Trump cares about the implications of what this means for the Kurds or the broader implications. What happens in Syria doesn't stay in Syria. The broader implications of what this means to the notion that anyone would ally with us in the future. I mean, wars come from left field. No one ever expects them. And when we are in the crisis, can we ever count on other people to trust the United States given the precedent which we've set here? Yeah. Now, I read you mentioned in your, I think, Washington Examiner op-ed that Russia will stand by their allies no matter what, even when they use chemical weapons, for example. So is the fear that in, an, in a war anywhere in the world now, indigenous forces just are not going to partner with the U.S. because they just won't trust us long term? That's absolutely the fear among many national security professionals across the political spectrum, especially those in the military who, A, worked with the Kurds, or B, saw firsthand Turkey's assistance to groups like al-Qaeda. Um, the al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria is called the Nusra Front. Uh, they've had several iterations of their name since, but that, that ultimately is the fear. And one of the broader issues is, look, anyone can tell President Trump that they will fight against terrorism, but let's remember there is no international definition of terrorism. As of 2006, there are more than 250 different definitions at play just among Western security agencies, so it becomes like an a la carte approach. Terrorism is everything I disagree with, but I'm going to protect the groups that I, that I like. And unfortunately, in the case of Turkey, some of the groups they like are al-Qaeda affiliates. On the other hand, while Turkey has had legitimate grievances against the Kurdistan Workers' Party, a group which is often known by its acronym, the PKK, uh, the insurgency inside Turkey since 1984 has killed perhaps 30 to 40,000 people. Um, at the same time, Turkey has a, a problem in that they can't tell the difference between a Kurdish fighter and a Kurdish farmer or a Kurdish schoolgirl walking to school. And because of that, we've got a real situation here in which there could be serious ethnic cleansing. So if I believe right now, I just saw a headline that the invasion now is underway into Northeastern Syria. Yes. 
So how far into Syria are they going to go? I know I, I saw a map and it had like a strip of of land to create like a safe zone in north in northeastern Syria. What are they actually going to do? I mean, they, are they going to penetrate all the way into wherever there's Kurds in Syria to essentially kick them out of there, the Turkish military? Or what are we looking at? Well, first of all, you can't always trust Turkish maps because if you trust Turkish maps, then a third of Cyprus is part of Turkey yeah. and increasingly some of these maps show parts of Greece and Bulgaria. I, I think it was a Wall Street Journal map. No, no. That was... <laughs> so, I think I got the same one. Exactly. No, I, I've seen what the Turks have, have suggested. Um, the thing to understand about this, just militarily, this area is mixed. You've got Christians, you've got Kurds, you've got Arabs, Arab Muslims, you've got Yazidis, and so forth. What I would expect the Turks to do wouldn't necessarily be to occupy all the Kurdish areas right away. I suspect they're going to go after the Kurdish, the Syrian Defense Force uh, command and control. But then what they're going to try to do is establish themselves in some of the predominantly Arab areas um, and try to force the Kurds to flee from those Arab areas. Now, some of those Arab areas are up near the Turkish border within that 30-kilometer, let's say, 20-mile zone. And by the way, most of the population lives in that 20-mile zone. Okay. But then you have major Arab cities like Derazor, which are further down. Now, one of the problems is while the Kurds had defeated the Islamic State and they were holding over 10,000 Islamic State prisoners, it's not clear that they're going to continue holding those prisoners if their forces are needed to fight the, the Turks or defend their population centers. Once the Turks consolidate control and sort of stake out territory in some of these Arab neighborhoods, I would expect then they would expand to try to move into some of the Kurdish areas and consolidate control. That's what we've seen previously about a year and a half ago in a Syrian district called Afrin. And in Afrin, and this is one of the sources for worry, the Turks not only went in there under the guise of fighting terrorism, it wasn't clear there was any actually terrorism from Afrin, but putting that aside, then what they did is they, they started digging up graveyards of, of the Kurds. They started tearing down statues. All that has the, the hallmarks of ethnic cleansing and not of fighting terrorism. They brought in a, a number of people, and they've tried to do social and religious engineering. For example, women can't get their ID photos unless they veil themselves in a traditional Islamic way. And so this is playing with the traditional moderation of the people in the, the region. That's what the fear is. And the other fear is when we talk about the Turkish invasion, how much is actually going to be Turkish forces and how much of it is going to be Turkish proxies? For example, the Turkish-backed elements within the Free Syrian Army, many of which are comprised of uh, members that used to fight with the Islamic State. So bad news for the Kurds. What happens to the 10,000 ISIS prisoners they currently have? Is there the fear that they just all get or a lot of them get released into the countryside? That's absolutely the fear. Okay. And I was, would suspect that perhaps that's already starting. Many of these um, prisoners have been kept at a camp called Al-Hul, H-O-L. Mm -hmm. And a few things have happened uh, last night and against the backdrop of the ongoing Turkish invasion. First of all, as Turkey signaled that the invasion was imminent, you had a number of sleeper cells attack in and around Raqqa which was, as you know, the former capital of the Islamic State. Mm -hmm. Then around Al-Hul, you had an almost coordinated attack on the guards um, guarding this camp, and you've had fires set within the camp. Um, the Kurds have already announced that controlling the Islamic State prisons is now their second priority because they have to fight off these Turkish invaders. And this is all happening within Syria's borders. So where does... President Assad, Bashar Assad fit into all of this? I imagine he's not happy about a bunch of Turkish troops streaming across his border, right? No, no, he's not. And the real question, however, is um, 
with regard to how the Kurds interplay with Bashar al-Assad. When you started having the uprising in Syria back in 2011, um, you had a lot of the Syrian forces withdraw basically against the backdrop of a Kurdish uprising in, north, in eastern, northern and eastern Syria. Now, there was sort of a status quo established between the Assad forces. These are the Syrian forces, um, which frankly are sympathetic to the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the Kurdish forces. In one of the towns, if anyone Googles a map and looks at a town called Kamishli, which is the largest town in um, northeastern Syria, what you find is in these maps of who controls what, you sort of have um, spots of regime control. And I've been to Kamishla. I was in Kamishla this past July, and I actually went through a regime checkpoint. I, I went through very fast because they, before they could stop <laughs> let me. let you through there? But, but um, because at that point, the regime territory was only about 100 meters wide, and so you just needed to speed hmm. through it. But um, they control, the regime controls like nine square blocks in the middle of the town. They control the bread factory where right next door the Kurds control uh, the courts. And so you got this patchwork. One of the big questions is why this patchwork? And basically, the Kurds have said when asked by the U.S. government, well, you know, we could fight the Azad regime, but they're not attacking us right here. And if we defeat them, and we would because we surround them on all sides, well, either they would have to surrender or fight to the death. If they surrender, then their family members back in Aleppo or in uh, Damascus are simply going to be killed. So we're not going to deal with that. Now, here's the thing. The Kurds suffered tremendously under Assad. But if given a choice between bringing the Assad forces back in or dealing with Turkish occupation, it's a no-brainer for the Syrian Kurds. They're going to bring the Assad forces back in, and then from a U.S. strategic standpoint, that's the completion of the so-called land bridge by which pro-Iranian forces can supply Hezbollah and go all the way to the eastern Mediterranean. This is a strategic disaster. So it's a strategic disaster, a moral disaster. There's two things, though. You make two predictions, and I think two different op-eds. One was that this could be like Vietnam for the Turks, and the other is that this could see we could now see ISIS 2.0. Uh, I think was yes. that that was you? Yes. Yeah. Um, can you go into both those a little bit? So if they invade northeastern Syria, and then we're gonna see mass, you know, I mean, to what extent do you expect to see full-blown fighting there between the Kurds and Turkey? We're we gonna see a, another war breakout. Well, first of all. Turkey has overwhelming qualitative military edge. The Kurds don't have air power. The Kurds don't have the type of artillery. You're going to see a Turkish occupation, but then what you're going to have is the use of landmines. You're going to have sniper attacks on Turkish soldiers. And then remember, many of the Turkish Kurds who are in northeastern Syria are there because as part of a peace agreement or peace talk um, that they had with Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, they agreed to move to Syria. Well, where else do they have to go now? So you do risk actually having um, the creation or the renewal of a mass insurgency in southeastern Turkey. Could we see, I mean, is there a part here too where they could go across the border and then use uh Kurdish Iraq as like a safe zone to kind of launch attacks against the Turks? Most likely not. The Kurdistan regional government, or at least the Kurdistan Democratic Party, uh, Barzani's group in Iraq, is basically at this point a wholly owned subsidiary of the Turks. They do okay. too much <laughs> business um, to do anything. I mean, Masroor Barzani, the president of, um, of um, the Kurdistan regional government, has basically subordinated Kurdish nationalism for his own bank accounts with the Turks. But one of the biggest surprises I had when I went to Syrian Kurdistan 
back in July was the presence of um, some Saudi intelligence officials and Saudi military officials. And so the question is, given sort of the diplomatic Cold War and the political warfare going on between Saudi Arabia and Turkey, is Saudi Arabia going to use this opportunity to sort of bog the Turks down? Okay. And you have any numbers of people. The problem with wars in the Middle East is they always devolve into proxy wars. And that's where it could be much more difficult for Turkey to get out than it was for them to get in. At, at which point would we see, I'm guessing we would see Turkish and Iranian proxies versus Gulf proxies funded by the UAE and Saudi? Um, basically, yes. That's speculation. I mean, if I had to give the... Um, I mean, see the the forest through the trees when it comes to Saudi Arabia and Turkey. What I, I mean, what Turkey is after is leadership of the Islamic world. And when Turkey is trying to delegitimize the Saudi monarchy, what they're trying to do is basically saying um, the Saudi monarchy, specifically Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, isn't worthy to be the custodian of the two holy mosques in Mecca and Medina. That's not to say the Turks would take over those mosques, but they would say, let's internationalize it. Let's have the organization of um, Islamic conference take over. Now, I mean, with a nod and a wink, the Turks dominate that group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they want to delegitimize Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia knows this. So how can they cause pain to Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the sort of Muslim Brotherhood affiliation or Muslim Brotherhood coalition that he now represents. This sounds like a total mess from a U.S. alliance point of view because Saudi Arabia is a stalwart ally of the U.S., but as you said earlier, Turkey is in NATO and is a NATO ally. Are we going to have to come to a point where we choose or possibly not ally with Turkey at all anymore? Well, behind the scenes, one of the big questions we have uh, or people debate in policy circles, and I'm not just talking within the Trump administration, uh, among Democratic supporters of um, uh, of Turkey as well as whether the problem, no one disagrees with the problems we have with Turkey right now. Um, perhaps Trump is the only one who, who appears ignorant of those problems. Rather, people are questioning whether once Erdogan is gone, once this president of Turkey is gone, who has sponsored terrorists, who has promoted extremism, who has dealt with Russia, would Turkey snap back to the way it was? I think it's wishful thinking to say they would. Erdogan has been in power now in Turkey um, for more than 16 years and his party for almost 17 years. In that time, pretty much everyone up to the lieutenant colonel, if not colonel level, rose in the army of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, rather than the traditional secular pro-NATO ally, which we once knew. And likewise, the top leadership of that army was put in place by Erdogan. All the school children and all the university graduates rose under the indoctrination of Erdogan. So what we see now with Erdogan isn't the result anymore of just one man. It's going to be a generational definition of Turkey. And that's where I think we're deluding ourselves if we think we can still deal with Turkey as an ally it once was rather than the country which it is now. So now, as Matt said earlier on the podcast, um, everyone, not everyone, a lot of people across both parties are criticizing the president, including people like Lindsey Graham who've supported him on so much other stuff. Can we expect to see an actual policy backlash, new sanctions against Turkey, or will this all fall flat? Well, ultimately, I think Congress will put new sanctions on Turkey. I mean, Chris Van Holland, who's a Democrat, has also stepped up in this regard. So you do have a bipartisan push uh, in Congress with regard to sanctions on Turkey. There's a lot of unease and simply Erdogan's assurances to Trump don't necessarily um, 
relieve that ease. One of the big questions coming up would be what's going to be the impact of Recep Tayyip Erdogan's um, theoretical White House visit come November. And we've seen when Recep Tayyip Erdogan has come here before that oftentimes his inability to tolerate protests has led to flashpoints which simply um, increase the anger. We saw attacks at the Brookings Institution. We saw attacks uh, outside the Turkish embassy and so forth. And some of these court cases that have resulted from these attacks are still ongoing. And it doesn't really, I mean, a love fest between Erdogan and Trump doesn't resolve some very real problems with regard to what Turkey is doing with Russia, uh, with regard to the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program, with regard to religious freedom, with regard to the incarceration of more journalists than any other country. And we've got some major problems with Turkey. Um, and simply put, and this is where it's very, very dangerous for Turkey, even if that love fest with Trump, between Trump and Erdogan continues, if Trump is out of office, in the coming year or after one more term, there will never be such a hostile Congress that Turkey has to deal with in a bipartisan basis than it has to deal with now. They're putting all their eggs in one basket and it's a very shaky basket. Yeah, and even beyond just Congress, I remember when Erdogan came last time, there was all these viral videos of his, of his thugs, as you said, just beating up American, or I don't know if they're American, but protesters on the American Americans. streets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that did not sit well with the U.S. public, as far as I can tell. I don't have the polling on that. But as a member of the public, I saw those videos and I thought, I cannot believe we have this guy beating up our own citizens here. Um, we're almost out of time, so maybe one final question. As you mentioned how we might see the Saudis, the Iranians, Turkey, the Kurds, Syria, everybody getting involved in this. It could become a proxy battle. So where does that leave the U.S.? What is the U.S.'s overriding objective in the Middle East, do you think? Is it to counter Iran or should it be to kind of maintain the status quo, including possibly our alliances with Turkey? The answer is yes. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, ultimately, um, our policies have been pretty consistent across administrations. One is support for Israel. The second is countering terrorism. Uh, Third is preventing violent opposition to any Middle East peace process. And the fourth is the free flow of commerce, um, the sanctity of international waterways and so forth. Where the serious situation comes into play is with regard to counterterrorism. Simply put, we didn't have many forces there. We amplified the the impact of our forces through our partnership with the Kurds. But if our forces are withdrawn, if the Kurds are no longer able to withstand Turkey, is a vacuum able to develop in which Islamic State version 2.0 will arise? That's ultimately the real danger. Some people, and I was having this debate this morning on a radio show, but some people will say um, that, look, the president has campaigned against endless wars. Why do we have any forces in Syria anyway? To me, it's not a matter of putting 100 forces in Syria or bringing everyone home. It's a question about whether those 100 forces in Syria will prevent the need for a deployment of many thousand more down the line. All right. We'll have to end it there. I learned a ton. Dr. Rubin, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Dr. Rubin, for coming on and enlightening us with that conversation. As we always say, please, if you enjoy this podcast, like us, rate us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Ricochet, AEI, comment section, wherever you, wherever you can find us. And we always, or email us at banter at AEI.org. We always love to hear from you. 
We also want to let you know that next week we have a huge guest. His name? Paul Wolfowitz. You might know him as formerly Undersecretary of Defense in the George W. Bush administration. President of the World Bank. President of the World Bank. One of my bosses. One of Max's bosses, <laughs> ambassador to Indonesia. Who can say what title is most important or carried the most weight? We've already interviewed him. We're, we're going to hold the episode till next week. And let me tell you, it is a barn burner. Fantastic. <laughs> we know you're going to enjoy it. If you guys don't have any comments, you will next week. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, we don't have much else to say. It's a quiet day over here at AI. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren saw today 50% the betting markets are giving her 50% chance of getting the nomination. I don't believe the betting markets. The betting markets know more about No, the poll the you. polling is better. The betting markets Dude, The have, polling now has her down by 0.3 percentage mm, points. Curious. Like the latest national She's poll. She's down. The, yeah, dude, she was down by like 10 points more than that. Just like a couple Oh, I yeah, I don't I don't disagree with them that she has momentum. Although did you see the story apparently of about her possibly lying about being fired for being pregnant? No. Forget about this. Yeah. So the, the Washington Free Beacon, conservative leaning online newspaper, broke a story that they actually found records of, I guess she claimed, I think when she was a public school teacher, that after becoming pregnant, the, her school fired her and said, you're not going to be a teacher next year. And the Free Beacon found documents that basically say that everybody recommended she come back and continue teaching. And she claims that while maybe she wasn't officially terminated explicitly, given the time period decades ago... It was implicitly understood that she was not welcome back. But it is a slight controversy, and there are questions now being asked between this, the made-up Native American thing, if she, has a, if she has a problem telling the truth, and overestimating hurdles she's had to Maybe it was a, tr- maybe it was a transla- translation error from English to Cherokee that didn't <laughs> quite come through in her termination. Hmm. It's, I, you know, it'd be culturally insensitive for me to disagree with that. <laughs> no, but no, there's actually, I also saw recently that Harvard magazine or whatever it was in the 90s bragged about hiring their first ever woman of color on staff and it was Elizabeth Warren. Was it? Yeah. This is this is also on the, uh, online a few like a month or so ago. Is that is that real? I as far as I could tell, yes. I've been talking so, to You see at AI would do real fact checking. <laughs> huh. Yeah. That whole thing is is ridiculous. Trump is going to use that against her over and over again in the election. I feel like it's going to work. Poke the whole Pocahontas thing. I haven't heard him say that in a while. I know. Well, he's probably holding his fire now till the actual election because he did. I mean, remember he tweeted not quite a year ago, but a while ago when it looked like Warren had no shot that, oh, I wish I didn't destroy her so badly. I would have loved to face her in the general election because I can she'd be the easiest one to beat. And I've, I've also seen reports that Team Trump in the White House does prefer to face Warren over anybody else because they think she'll be the easiest. Now, whether that is whether or not that is true. Or a smart strategy, I don't know. Hillary also famously wanted to face Trump, and that that kind of backfired. There, there is an article. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal today, talking about there's an op-ed talking about Elizabeth Warren versus Trump and her polling and stuff. And then, I mean, they went through her policies and they went through the state she needs to win. And it's like she wants to ban fracking. Yeah. And they're trying to turn Texas and in, Pennsylvania. They're trying to turn Texas and Pennsylvania into purple states. Or well, obviously, yeah, Pennsylvania already is, but Texas. They they want Democrats to win these states and she wants to ban fracking. And there's there, there's a whole list of things they went through it and they're like this is not and whereas in all these states Biden polls like five to seven points better than her yeah um, against Trump yeah also once the GOP releases ads saying how the Democrats want to ban get rid of your private health insurance which most Americans have although Warren has been apparently she's not, pretty she ambiguous has, on yeah that she issue. hasn't said it exactly but I mean they'll still hit her with it yeah the uh, the bigger thing though is I just I also don't think we can trust these head to, we should have talked to Carlin Bowen about this last week I don't know if we can trust these head to head polls that well. That much because, I mean, if you remember last time, 
Kasich was always polling. Kasich over Hillary was like plus 10. Rubio over Hillary was like plus 8. Trump was always like plus 1 or minus 1. And yet looking back in hindsight, I don't know if Kasich or Rubio would have been able to pull the electoral victory that Trump did. I don't know if either yeah. either one of them would have won Michigan. I don't think, Rubio, I don't think Rubio would have. Yeah. So maybe this the 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 early se- the early season head to head polling. I just don't know how much stock we can put into it now. Yeah, we should have we should have asked Carlin last week. Have they changed their methods for polling? Given she also said that they were accurate on a national level last year, which surprised me because yeah, they they were accurate on we we tried to clarify. I can't remember if it was the state polls or the national polls, but some, one, one of them was some of, one of the polls. Some of the polls were accurate, but a lot of the forecasters just looked at the the wrong methods. I think, but we 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 do have another teaser we have for you. Don't have a date set for this episode yet, but Daniel Cox, another one of AEI's polling experts, contributor at five thirty eight, is going to join us later on, either this month or next, and we can t- get more into the science of polling in that episode. Yeah. yeah, well, it'll be interesting. Stay tuned for the best Democratic primary analysis only on Banter. A lot to look forward to. A lot to look forward to, and we look forward to bringing you next week's episode. See you then. Yeah, well, I don't think we have any interesting comments to read. Is there nothing? I nothing. Checked, but yeah. so instead, I wrote you guys a poem. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can delete that.